Well, good morning, church. How good it is to be with you, as it is every Lord's Day to be with you, but especially this morning as we set apart this one Lord's Day throughout the year to especially remember and celebrate that we serve a risen Christ, not just a memoriam of a philosopher or maxims that we could put our hope in, but that we serve a risen Jesus and that he's here this morning. Continue to pray for you as a church, you and your membership here as No doubt you continue to pray for me, seeking the Lord's direction and trusting in his goodwill. And I'm looking forward to being with you not only this morning, but uh, in the coming weeks um, in the month of May and and continuing into into June. So as we are here this morning, would you turn with me in your copy of God's word to John chapter 11. The portion of scripture that was just read verses... uh, 25 to 27 will be really the the focus of our consideration this morning as we hear God's word, but as we're turning there, let me set it within the the larger context of which uh, John gives to us here. If you have your scriptures open, let's begin looking at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Would you pray with me? And let's ask the Lord for his help as we consider his word together. Our God and Father, we rejoice this morning as we have gathered in response to the great announcement that you have sent your Son into this world. And in hearing and knowing that you have the very purpose and reason that you have sent him for our sakes and for our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we hear of these simple yet profound truths that you've given to us in your word about death and life, about hope and resurrection, about the newness of all things and the certainty by which we can hold them because of what you have done on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would help us by the aid of your very spirit to hear and receive these things that they would be mixed with faith. Lord, that you would cause these things to be made plain before our eyes, and by the illumination of your spirit, you would cause them to take hold of us, that they would not merely be things that we could mimic and trot back with our our lips, but Lord, that you would cause our souls to be animated by the very work of your spirit, that we would know these things, and that these things would transform the way that we live our lives, the very assurance that we have as we walk before you, and ultimately, Lord, the absolute confidence that we can have in death. We pray, Lord, that you would do all of these things that Christ may be seen, that he might be exalted, and that he might have the rightful place as the one who rules over all your creation, the one who is the chief shepherd of his church, the one who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, may we see him and receive him as he is, by the work of your spirit, for your glory and for the good of this church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Typically, Easter is synonymous with bright colors, flowers, and the newness of life. Some of you even reflecting that in the way that you've gotten dressed or that your homes are decorated or the cards that you maybe even sent to friends or family this weekend. And while there is, I think, good reason for this and for doing so and marking off this season in that particular theme, any talk of newness of life, flowers, new hope, is absolutely hollow if it's not at the same time understood within the context of death. If we're really going to say anything helpful, if we're really going to have any sort of lasting hope concerning new life, then we must keep those things bound forever tightly to the painful reality of death, ironically enough. But even in saying that, I recognize death can be an awkward subject for us, especially in our comfortable American culture, because in large part, we have done a very good job of sanitizing death. For most Americans, we often see the symptoms leading up to death, but typically, the closest that we come to actually observing death is sitting in a climate-controlled funeral home, 
a church building filled with beautiful flowers, or even out at a graveyard that is manicured perfectly with well-watered green grass and polished tombstones. We have done a very good job of keeping the reality of death detached from us as far as possible. But the irony in our avoidance of death is that it is the one event that awaits every single one of us. It is the one event that is common to every single man and woman. And therefore, is it any wonder that the greatest declaration of Scripture concerning life and hope and newness is enshrouded in this very backdrop of death? Death looms over everything that is said and felt and ultimately explained here in John chapter 11. And this is precisely where the Christian faith stands apart from all other philosophies, religions, or incantations that you can say to yourself to bring comfort. Because at the heart of this message here in these scriptures, what do we find? We find a God-sent deliverer who affirms and actually enters into the misery of our world, and yet he stands up and he proclaims that he is, in fact, triumphant over death. We are gathered here this morning for the very same reason that Christians have gathered together every Sunday morning since this event, because of what Jesus has declared and what he has accomplished concerning life and death. What is our only comfort in life and in death? Well, John chapter 11 declares to you and I, yes, there is great horror in death, but there is great hope in death. Let's consider that this morning first by recognizing There is great horror in death. And we will be spending the bulk of our time in verses 25 through 27, but before we get there, we need to widen our lens out just a bit before we zoom in on what Christ says. And the wide-angle lens here is acknowledging that there is great horror in death. Notice that John gives sufficient background here and some particular details so that we, the reader, might feel and see the pain of what is happening. We're told that Jesus had some very dear friends in a nearby town about two miles away called Bethany. We're told that these weren't just casual acquaintances that he met in passing, but John tells us in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary, and he loved their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus was sick. So sick, we're told, that the sisters sinned to Jesus out of their concern for him to come and to help him. But in the order of events that John gives to us here, Lazarus dies. Now, it has to be said straight away that death is not natural. Do you understand that? Death is not the yin to the yang of life. It's not the seesaw that that balances out the joys of life because we need to have the reality of death. That is not true. 
God is not the author of death. For death has actually entered our world through sin. Scripture refers to death as the last enemy. It's not natural. It's not a friend. It's the enemy. That is what death is. There is this horror of death in its sorrow. Think about it. Death must be seen for what it is. It is horribly grievous because it it is a corruption. It is a distortion upon everything that God has created and called good. And we get a a little glimpse into that in a very familiar scene if you've been around death yourself. Look ahead to verse 32 in this interaction between Martha and Mary and their friends. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also Weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. There's great sorrow here, isn't there? There's tears being shed by family, by friends who have come around. Christ himself, we're told, weeps. Now, don't miss the implication here. It is wrong to glibly speak of death as fitting or good or normal or just an accepted part of life. Death is a grotesque distortion of life. Death is a corruption of all that God has created and given. So every time that we are faced with the death of a friend, a mother, a father, a spouse, a sibling, a child, it ought to punch us in the gut as we are sobered back to this harsh reality that sin has corrupted everything that God has created. Death stands essentially is this roadside billboard advertising of the rebellion and of all humanity and the the consequence of that rebellion. That's what death is. It's a giant placard every time we see it, every time we experience it, that reminds us sin equals death. We know this to be true because of Paul's announcement and teaching in Romans 5, telling us for the very origin of death, Romans 5 verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, we ought to grieve in death. It is fitting to mourn in death. It's fitting to cry, to even wail in death. Because in death, we are confronted with the bitter consequences of rejecting God, and we see the stain and the curse of sin right before us. That's what it is. God brought life. He brought light. But in our sin, we bring death and corruption. Death exists because sin exists. Martha tasted this. Mary tasted this. Lazarus tasted this. And Christ would taste this. 
To be sure, there is deep sorrow in every death. But we must press further. What exactly is the real pain of death? Certainly there is sorrow in death. But the horror of death is ultimately in its sting, to use the language of scripture. When we stand beside caskets or visit headstones, is the ultimate separation we experience from our loved ones the the sting that we are here and they are not? Is that it? Or is it our squeamishness towards death and simply the regret of a life that has ended as we know it? Is that the ultimate pain of death? No. The scriptures press further than that. There is something worse than the corruption of bodies as cells die off and organs begin to stop working. There is something worse than the separation that we feel from the loss of those that have died. The ultimate sting of death is sin. Meaning, the horror of every death is the guilt which haunts us knowing most certainly at some level, I am accountable to God. This life will end, and I will give an account for it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's unpacking the great glories of the resurrection and its primary foundation to the Christian faith, he speaks to this very point, and he uses this word, sting. Listen to how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. What Paul means here is that the law of God stands as a witness that testifies against us as to how well we lived the life we were given. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What Paul is getting at is that we have been created in God's image. Every man and woman has been created to reflect his or her creator. And yet, what the scriptures also teach is though we've been created to live into his glory for his standards of goodness and holiness, that we have failed. And it's not just that we failed, like we really wanted to, but we, we, we didn't pull it off. The scriptures teach that we have no desire to. And that when we hear of it, we actually suppress that and say, no, I'd rather not. And Because of sin that dwells within us, we continue to harden our hearts against the very idea of living unto this God who is our creator. And there is no one living person who does not sense this in some way. Now, people may deal with it and respond to that reality in different ways, but every single one of us have been created by God and there is this gnawing sense of reality that at one point, I will give an account to him. Therefore, the ultimate sting of death is not the fear of nothingness. It is the reality of accountability. It's the thought of standing before the one true and living God 
and giving an account for every thought, every word, every deed. And did I live according to his purpose for me, to know him, to trust him, to image him, to delight in him? What will we say in that moment? What can we say when all things are laid open and bare before his sight? What will we do when we can no longer make excuses for our behavior or for our reason why it just didn't work out or why it's different for me than for them? If you've never thought in this way, I I pray you would. I pray that you do. Because it is only when we begin to sense the magnitude of our guilt and the sting of what death really is that we then begin to see the worth of Christ. That we begin to see why God's people make such a big deal about gathering every Sunday because some man named Jesus died and rose again, and ascended. There is great horror in death, but the scriptures would announce to us with equal emphasis, there is great hope in death. Why can I say that? Look down at verse 20 of John chapter 11. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus stands face to face with grieving Martha, and he speaks hope into the midst of her misery. And it is precisely at this intersection of her misery and Christ's words of hope that the message of the scriptures is clear. There is hope in the midst of death, and this hope is anchored to the person of Christ. There is hope in death because, first of all, Christ is the resurrection. There's hope in death because Christ is the resurrection. Now, keep in mind, resurrection is not a new concept that Jesus suddenly inserts here into the conversation. Martha knew of this hope. She clung to it. She would have read the wisdom of Job. She would have sung Psalm 16, which was read here this morning. Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Job's wisdom, chapter 19, verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall, see, shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. You see, Martha, she had great hope in, in an event, in a moment in time when the dead will be raised incorruptible. This is what she clung to. She said, I know this. But Jesus gives her something greater than an event. He gives her himself. I am the resurrection. Notice what he does not say here. He does not say, I will be the resurrection for you, though he would rise from the grave himself. He did not say, I will show you how to live a life that results in great triumph so that you can resurrect as well. He says, I am the resurrection. Don't lose sight of the absolute bravado and greatness of this claim. I am the resurrection. If it were not for what Jesus said further and ultimately did, this would be absolutely ridiculous. This would be like your son coming home from a little league practice and declaring, I am baseball. Or your daughter exiting the stage and saying, I am ballet. I am resurrection. That is the bar that Jesus is declaring that he is. The very thing that you hope in, you're looking at it. I am the resurrection. Martha says, I hope in resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Let me put it to you this way. Resurrection exists because Jesus is. This means that if you want to understand and experience the hope of what we're talking about, the hope of resurrection, then it must come through Jesus. That is the, the way that you must move forward to understand and experience this. It's just in the same way that Jesus did not come just to give bread, as he would do in, in John. He says, but to be bread. In the same way. He does not simply command resurrection to take place. He is resurrection. This is why Calvin would say we cannot receive Christ's gifts without our receiving of Christ himself. That's why Christians have gone to great lengths to define what we mean when we say I'm a Christian. We're ultimately saying I am united to Christ. It's not that Christ just doles out wonderful things to us, treats and blessings, he unites us to himself. All that he is, we partake in by being united to him by the work of the Spirit. That is why it is this bedrock of Christianity that we don't just receive gifts from Christ. We get him. We're united to him. All that he is and all that he has accomplished and his very person we partake of and are hidden in. Resurrection is a fact and an experiential reality precisely because of who Jesus is. Everything that the Bible claims, everything that Christ 
professes and announces and ultimately accomplishes, it all is the foundation of this resurrection. To put it plainly, Christ's resurrection is the announcement of a, of a living hope precisely because of the sort of death that he rose from. The death that he died, it magnifies the very wonder and great joy of the resurrection that he accomplishes. Why do I say that? Well, what sort of death did Christ die? Helps us understand the significance of the resurrection he announces. Again, Paul in Romans 4 tells us that Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The death he died was the death of a substitute. It was for the sins of his people. So the life that he now lives, risen and ascended, is for the justification of his people. This is the great clue as to why the resurrection matters. It's not just an inspirational event that we find some sort of grit to press on another day. I will rise again. It is the announcement of what God has done in his son. The sacrificial substitutionary death that he died is linked to the resurrection that he now is and lives for our justification. Are you tracking? Do you, do you follow with the logic of scripture here? The resurrection brings us hope in the midst of sin and misery because of what the resurrection affirms and announces. Jesus conquered death, proving that his life and his death were the sufficient payment for his people. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a signal to all of creation that the penalty is now paid and the cost sufficient. Satisfaction is taken. What this means, church, is that the very thing that destroys us has been destroyed through the death of Christ. This is why John Owen called the death of death and the death of Christ. Go home and think upon that. In Christ's death and resurrection, we have the death of death. The very reason that Christ came was to put an end to death by killing death itself. That's why we call him the great victor, the triumphant one, the risen Lord, crowned with many crowns. All of the hymns and the language that we use as Christ's people, they're not empty or trivial. They have great substance and meaning. The resurrection is essentially the exclamation point on the wonderful announcement of the gospel. Sinful men and women can be reconciled to God because God has made a way. That is what the resurrection announces. I love this portion in Isaiah chapter 25, speaking of Christ. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will swallow up death forever. The whole human race is plunged into death. 
But because Jesus is the resurrection, there is hope in death. But not only because he is the resurrection do we have hope, but secondly, we're told we have hope in death because Christ is our life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, here's something we don't always think of. While salvation certainly, most definitely, includes the forgiveness of sin, it's not only the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus rose from the dead in a resurrected body, he declared there, there, there is not only comfort in the forgiveness of sin, but the anticipation of something more, newness of life, resurrected bodies for all of his people. What he came to proclaim is not just eternal life in the body that you now live in, but abundant life in immortal bodies is what he came to give. Now, the theme of life, it appears again and again in John's gospel. It's a theme that he's taken up with as he observes Christ's ministry and writes about it, not only here in his gospel, but if you read through his epistles, you'll find these themes of life continue to captivate his writing. Just listen to just some of the the emphasis in John's gospel, back to the prologue in chapter 1. All things were made through him, being Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 5, Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And of course, chapter 10, the I am good shepherd portion where he says, the thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or ultimately in chapter 17, when we get to listen in to Christ's high priestly prayer. How does he begin? This is eternal life. And what is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know what it is to be made alive? Now, you may have blood pumping through your body. You may have air filling up your lungs. You may have all sorts of thoughts filling your brain. But it is possible that you may still be dead. It is possible to be physically alive, yet dead. But, When we are united to Christ, the Spirit of God animates our soul to be alive unto God. That very purpose that he created his people for. He created every man and woman to be an image bearer of him. When the Spirit of God comes in and awakens a dead soul. They are animated now to live and to delight unto this God that created them. This is why Jesus would say later in chapter 5 of John, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There it is again. We have hope in death because Christ is life. Again, not just that he gives life, but he actually animates. He is life. And here in John 11, what we get is really the appetizer to the main course, isn't it? Because if you know the end of the story, you know what happens with this dearly loved friend, Lazarus. What does Christ do? Well, he does just as he does to every man and woman that he calls to himself. He speaks. Christ will call out to, his, to a dead man, and this dead man will be alive. That is the appetizer for the main course, because if you are here and you know this true and living God, you do so because Christ came and spoke to you when you were dead and made you alive. This is what Paul unpacks in his epistle that you as a church just walked through in recent months. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There is hope in death because Christ is life. So let me ask you, is that it? Jesus makes everything sad come untrue? And everybody who dies will just know eternal life now because Jesus came and he's conquered death? That means there's nothing to fear. We can all go home and eat ham? No. Not at all. Jesus presses further. There is hope in death because he is resurrection. There is hope in death because there is, he is life. But there is hope in death only if Christ is the anchor of belief. This is not universalism. This is not that Jesus has come and triumphed over death and now the whole world is bright and shiny. He announces these things that are eternally, ultimately true. But he's very clear in saying that this hope only belongs to those who believe. There's something worse than death, friends. It's the refusal to believe in Jesus. As traumatic, as grievous, and as sorrow as the death of every living person is, there is something worse than physical death. It is dying with a refusal to trust in Christ. Do you see that this glorious promise that is right here suspended for us in John chapter 11 hangs upon the presence of belief? Look back at your Bibles at verse 25. Did you notice this when we read it? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, this is very perfect and perfectly consistent with the very reason that John wrote this gospel. He tells us at the end the very reason why he penned and put all this together, the signs and the I am statements. 
You may remember this in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So then, the all-important question that you should be asking right now in your mind is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? If everything that has been announced is wonderfully good news, but it is suspended upon the presence of belief, then the question that is before us, that must be answered, is what does it mean to believe? Is simply praying a prayer and going forward in an altar call belief? Is going to church is participating in songs and prayers, mission trips, service days. Is that belief? Is belief giving up certain vices or bad habits? Is tolerance considered belief? I'm not against Jesus. Is that good enough? To each his own. That's the spirit of the age, isn't it? Is that belief? To believe in Jesus is to take all that the scriptures declare about God, about salvation, about humanity, and affirm it. Agree with it. And submit to it. And to have your life shaped by it. One of the confessions that this church and many others hold to, the Second London Confession, it talks in chapter 14 about saving faith. It's a really important chapter. It says in chapter 14, paragraph 2, regarding faith, the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. What a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. This saving faith, it's focused on Christ, not on what you've given up, not on what you're doing, not on a prayer that you prayed, not on work that you do. Saving faith is principally focused on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone. So we could say then that belief in Jesus means that we believe that God sent Christ to rescue his people by becoming the sacrificial substitute, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we actually deserve to die, and rising from the grave. To believe in Jesus is to agree with God that you need salvation. Not just the world, not just that your aunt or your grandpa, but that you need salvation. Because you've come to see the corruption of sin in your own life. You see that your desires, your love, even your motives should be pulled like a magnet away from what is true and good and beautiful and been distorted to something else that is corrupted. When we believe in Jesus, we're no longer content to blame our environment or others or our childhood we see that we are liable ourselves. When we believe in Jesus, ultimately, we're clinging to a promise. 
To believe in Jesus is to cling to the promise that God has made and wonderfully that God has fulfilled. This promise is that God takes treasonous sinners and makes them sons by the substitutionary work of his son. Christian, right here is the ground of your assurance. Right here. Justice has been satisfied. God's forgiveness of sin is most certainly motivated by by loving grace, but don't think it was just a whimsical feeling that came over him one day and said, I feel really loving today, I'm going to save you. That's not very assuring. We are free, most certainly, Christian, from the guilt and shame of our sin because it was laid upon Christ. Forgiveness is certain because justice has been satisfied. So for good reason, Jesus asks Martha rather bluntly, do you believe this? So I ask you, you're here, do you believe this? Do you feel the sting of death as your conscience pricks you, reminding you that you will give an account for this life? Are you accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone? If you don't believe this, and I understand that there may be someone here who does not, you're here because, let's be honest, it's Easter. You may have heard these things, but you're not certain that they are the things that you hold to. So friend, I would ask you, along with every other member of this church, would want to ask you, what then do you believe? What is your hope in death? What is your comfort? What is your comfort in cancer, in car wrecks, in homicide, in dementia? What is your hope? What is your comfort in life and in death? It's a wonderfully important question, and it's a question that Christians have been asking and answering actually very precisely and very helpfully for some 500 years. It's not a new question. It's actually the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Listen to how God's people have been answering what the Bible teaches in sort of a summary. Answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation." Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of my eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Reconciled by the blood of Christ. Delivered from the misery of death. Preserved by the sovereign will of a heavenly father for all our days. This is the sort of comfort that we all long for, the sort of comfort that God provides 
through his son to all who would believe. The world may hold up Easter as a, in springtime as full of pastels and tulips, but that is a far cry from the anchor of hope that's given to us in the gospel. Christians gather together on Easter Sunday for the same reason they gather together every Sunday. We have hope in death because Christ has declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Our God and our Father, we rejoice to hear that you have made such provision at your own cost, by your own wisdom, by your own might, strength, and faithfulness for sinners like us. Lord, we rejoice to hear that you've not only accomplished it, but you call out to those who are actually dead in sin, to the very ones that you've created for your good purposes that have turned their backs upon you. Lord, you have sent your son to save a people for yourself. Lord, we ask that the good news of this announcement of life, death, and resurrection would transform us, would shape us, bringing great assurance, joy, and anticipation. It would be the very foundation of this church and the very reason that we continue to gather together and share in life with one another. Lord, we rejoice to hear that this is ours in Christ by faith. We pray that you would continue to do this, and as was prayed earlier, that you would Cause this message to ring out from your pulpits throughout the world and throughout the mouth of your followers everywhere that your church gathered is gathered and assembled. Do this, we pray, for the glory of your Son. Amen.